0: Hello, welcome to the infusion room today. I am so happy I've got Maureen Berger with me. We're going to talk about the Dirty Dozen, and I bet you wonder what that is. Welcome, Maureen.
1: Hi, Dawn. Thanks for having me back again. So happy to talk about some of our favorite topics.
0: Yeah, so isn't isn't the title Dirty Dozen, isn't that kind of strange all by itself? What are we talking about? (laughs)
1: Well, whether you want to call it the dirty little secrets or just because it, it contaminated things we're talking about, but dirty doesn't, and this is just 12 of the things that we kind of pulled off the top of our heads. But these are the things that happen sometimes. Well, let's just say the things that happen sometimes when we're faced with a decision, when we're out there taking care of our patients. And Dawn, I'll always say that safety is what we choose to do with our patients when no one is looking. So the Dirty Dozen seems to fit right into that that whole concept.
0: Okay, so let's dig right in. Number one, it's really difficult to get on a new set of gloves after degloving and performing hand hygiene when you're in the middle of a dressing change. So what if a nurse elects to forego hand hygiene between the glove changes so that the next set of gloves goes on really smoothly?
1: I'm sure that we've both seen this happen before and we've even had this happen to ourselves in terms of what do we do when we have to take the gloves off and do hand hygiene in between. But if you think about what the principles are underneath, if the gloves have, are you know, when we go from clean to dirty and then we have to go back into clean again, we have to change our gloves and you have to do hand hygiene because the surface of the gloves may have been compromised and certainly our hands are no longer clean and hand hygiene is required. It doesn't take that long for alcohol to dry and it's worth it for our patients. Be prepared. Think through your procedure so that you are you know the steps that you're going to do and you don't inadvertently create a situation where you have to change your gloves, where if you'd have thought it through and organized the procedure, you may be able to get through without having to do that.
0: Right. And I think sometimes what we do see is... Hand hygiene is performed, but maybe with just a tiny squirt of alcohol. Um, it's, it's almost like stepping through the process, you know, checking the boxes. But really the full intent of that step was not completed. Because if your hands didn't get wet, then they're not clean. That's right. That's now, right.
1: one other thing that does help sometimes is it depending on the type of procedure and what you're doing, you may be able to double glove. And in doing so, you remove the top glove and you still have a glove underneath that hasn't been compromised. And a lot of times if you're doing like a a large dressing change and removing the old and moving, and it's not a sterile procedure, that sometimes is a way to manage that.
0: Mm -hmm. We do have to keep in mind, though, um, the, the gloves that come out of a box on the wall, you know, they're pretty good but their percentage of effectiveness is limited. Um, They they are not impervious. So, we know that something does get through a glove. Let's go on to a different question. So, our next question is uh, when we're going to describe how an accident kind of happens and what we should do. So, a nurse is getting ready to spike a tubing set, and that spike just touches the finger on the way into the bag. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't think any of us have not had this happen.
1: I I agree with you. And you know, when I think about that, because I've had something weird happen to me once, they had same thing with spiking something and and contaminating and having to wait for somebody to go and help you in the meantime. But you know, When you think of the fluid path on your IVs and the fact that that Mm -hmm. tubing is, you know, it it should be a closed system all the way through. And if you're changing a bag on it, it's really important that we remember that whole idea about the key parts and the key sites are like from ANTT, because that spike there is going to be in that fluid for a long time. And you are increasing the chances of microbial growth and contamination and then you're just infusing bacteria into your patient so Mm -hmm, while mm -hmm. it seems like a a very trite thing it's actually a really bad thing you have inoculated that bag and in doing so this is where you just say so well I guess we're going to change your IV tubing today you know because we're going to do that. The sad part is if you've already poked the hole in the bag, you got to toss the bag too.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. It just you just figure, you know, what what is the cost? How, mu- how much time was saved? How much cost was saved in relationship to how much harm could be done? And it, yeah. it's, it's just it's always right to do the right thing.
1: It it is always right to do the right thing, and like I said, now that we are leaving lines, you know, in for longer periods of time, and our tubing sets are longer periods of time, it is critical that we maintain asepsis.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to talk about a different type of accident. So the medication syringe. We're just getting ready to connect to a needleless connector. And it slides off, and again, we contaminate it, and there is medication in the syringe. we're all busy getting ready to medicate the patient, and we have now contaminated the tip of the syringe and we could complicate that by saying, and it's a really expensive medication.
1: My approach to this because so every procedure works for eighty percent of the time, right? And twenty percent of the time now we have to make a decision about what to do mm-hmm. and you know, if it's, this is a regular medication that you're giving this patient, make sure, first of all, that you're slowing it down enough that you can make this connection without worrying about slipping off. But sometimes it's hard to get those in and sometimes it slides off. And if you're really going to do the right thing by your patient, you would stop and start this procedure all over again and go get another drug. But now you're stuck with, what do I do when it's that $80,000 medication? Or infusion, or any kind of thing like that. What else can you do there? You know, can you disinfect the end of that tubing in some sort of way? Can you mitigate the risk? And the answer to that question is, I don't know if I can make that decision on my own. Somebody else is going to have to help me with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a dilemma.
1: It is a, a dilemma. Dilemma. You know, throw in on top of that, maybe you have an immunocompromised patient. You know, then it really becomes, you know, now what am I talking about here? So. Knowing the principles of asepsis and the principles of decision-making are critical here. And cost should not be an issue when we're trying to protect our patients.
0: Yes. Yep. Okay. Here's our third question. What would you say to someone who scrubs the finger of a gloved hand with antiseptic so that they could repalpate... (laughs) (laughs) The vessel during PIV insertion after that site has already been scrubbed. Oh, God.
1: And I know we've all seen that. We've seen so many different variations of the glove with the finger hole cut out so that the finger keeps palpating. You know, again, the answer to that question is that's not a good practice. You know, and the procedure is such that you can identify and know where your vein is and then prep the skin and have your gloves on and be prepared and do your procedure. If something changes, then you have to stop and do the procedure over again. You don't all of a sudden try to say, well, I'll clean off my finger and be able to stick it on the site. No, you you no. don't do that. The answer is just no.
0: So that's scrubbing the glove or scrubbing your own, you know, the nurse's finger. Um, it just doesn't cut it. However, we do have a solution. If you are an individual who feels you must palpate after it's scrubbed, ANTT, um, let, let's say the standard 18 that is ANTT in the new standards of practice. It describes very specifically if you are going to repalpate, you have to have on a sterile pair sterile of gloves. gloves. Yeah, you know, just prepare ahead of time. If you know that's you, don't try to sterilize your own gloves. <laughs> don't don't sterilize your own finger. Whatever it is that you're going to do, um, just make the make the steps that you have to take. Use a pair of sterile gloves if you absolutely have to repalpate uh, during an insertion procedure.
1: Absolutely, Don. Great point on that. And nobody hate, Nobody likes to be able to say, well, I have to do that. But you know what? Nobody's perfect. And we all have our own physical limitations. I got long fingers. You've got short fingers. I have a different sense of, you know, my tactiles are different than yours. So it's okay if you have to pull a pair of, of sterile gloves on to do the procedure. Nothing wrong with that.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay, let's let's talk about another one of our dirty dozen. This one's kind of a tough one, I think. I think this has happened to us. The patient just had a new vascular access device inserted. Organizational policy states that the patient's administration set or sets must be changed whenever we're connecting to a new vascular access device. However, there's still a large amount of medication yet to be administered, what's the right thing to do?
1: Toss it. Toss it, toss it, toss it. Um, Again, we were just talking about the fact that our lines are going to stay in for a long time and that tubing needs to be protected. I mean, so the fluid path, and you got to think of everything that's attached to that. So it's from the bag all the way down to the patient. So if I'm starting with a brand new line and I got brand new clean tubing to go with it, I am not going to stick a bag on there that's already been, it's not contaminated per se, but it's already been opened and it's already been connected. It's no longer part of that brand new clean fluid path. Mm -hmm. So it's got to go. So be prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to, if they're going to start a new line, let's say they're going to put a new triple lumen or a new pick into this patient, you're going to transfer his meds over then get all of your stuff ready to go. Have your bags ready to go. Have the fluids run through so that once your Mm -hmm. procedure's done, you're connecting all your new stuff and you're getting rid of your old stuff. But you can't reuse that bag.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Okay, next topic. You know, again, this is kind of like one of those pinches, that we kind of get in. So, m- nurses uh, performing the SASH, I think we're supposed to say sas now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not the saline flush. There's no, administer anymore, yeah. and there's no heparin anymore, but then we're going to flush it again and lock it. Um, but after starting the procedure, the nurse finds that they only brought one alcohol pad. Now, I don't know how, how many times you only have one alcohol pad within your reach, but in the midst of that procedure and hanging on to that device and not letting that, that tip go and handling your syringes, the nurse might decide to use the same wipe repeatedly. Yeah. It's still wet. Is that okay?
1: No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and according to, according to my Ten Commandments, God created pockets on scrubs to put alcohol wipes in. And some may say, well, carrying stuff in your pocket means it could get contaminated. But you know what? I'm always going to have an alcohol swap for that rare time when I forgot to arrange everything. Or let's just say I put everything together and then they, they dropped on the floor. You know, any, there, anything could happen where all of a sudden alcohol wipes are not available when you need them to be. So being prepared, it's like being a scout you know, you got to think about the potential for things to happen. And, you know, if you're in a patient room and you can't get to it, if you can get to the call light, you have, you know, put a call light on and ask somebody to grab you something. But Mm -hmm. I swear to, you know, it's one of those things where you don't, you start your day filling your pockets and have your stuff ready for you. I'm not saying you fill your pockets all the time, but don't, you know, your patient's going to move and you know that you're not supposed to use the bed to hold all your supplies, but you just did. And those alcohol wipes are going flying. So, you know, plan ahead. Have have the right. Have your overbed table cleaned off with your your equipment arranged on it. You know, think of it and think in terms of standard ANTT. You're going to clean off that area. Lay down a towel or something that have everything arranged on it. You're going to have your alcohol wipes there and your syringes to go. Then, if you do that and you're very intentional with what it is, you're never going to find yourself with only one alcohol swab. You know, I was reading in a, um, I I get the lister from uh, a a pharmacy group every day. And one of the questions that came out was in the clean room, you know, when I'm popping the tops off of some of the vials, can I use the same alcohol swab over again? And I thought, all right, here's a pharmacy colleague who's asking a similar question. Like, how many times can you use an alcohol wipe? And the answer is Mm -hmm. once. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't
1: matter what the device is that you're wiping off. It's once.
0: Absolutely. So, as long as you mentioned vials, let's let's talk about that. So, there's a myth out there that when you pop that little metal piece off of a medication vial, that the stopper underneath is sterile. True or false?
1: False. <laughs> it, it would be nice if manufacturers did make a a, a cap that actually uh, had a sterile. Vial underneath it, but that's not true. So that cap comes off, and although it's called a dust cap, it's not really protecting dust. There is more than dust underneath there. And you do have to wipe the surface of that. And that's a good, you know, you're taking that same idea that when you're using to connect like a needless connector, and you're going to take your alcohol swab and you're going to clean that off. And then you're going to wait for it to dry before you put your needle, either your blunt needle or your sharp needle through that. Because you don't want to have the alcohol going into the medication, but it's 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 a connector. I always think anytime you're pushing one thing into another, key parts and key sites, guys,
0: then mm-hmm. that has
1: got to be disinfected. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that you know we I I encounter this all the time in the work that I do because I sort of have one foot in nursing and one foot on the pharmacy side of things. But our pharmacy colleagues colleagues will say, well, you're supposed to just wipe. You you take and you wipe three times over the top of the vial with an alcohol um, a wipe. One, two, three. And it's like, well, where'd that come from? So I'm trying to get to the bottom of that, where there are references for that, because I want the evidence base on that. Because mm-hmm. I think we all know that it takes some friction and some time, you know, so you have to have time of contact and friction in order to disinfect.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, we're going to tackle another one of our Dirty Dozens. Although I, people are going to wonder why this made the list. Hand hygiene on top of gloved hands. So we're, we have got gloves on, but now we're washing our hands. So performing hand hygiene. What's the deal with that?
1: Oh, man. John, I, you know, there are just certain things that, that you encounter in your life, and all of a sudden they become, I don't know, this is one of my biggest bugaboos, I think. And I ran across this at a hospital that I was working at where it seemed like this was this was just an accepted procedure. You know, I have gloved hands on. I don't have time to take them off because as we were just talking about before, taking them off and performing hand hygiene and putting on another set of gloves is just inconvenient. So why can't I just do hand hygiene on top of gloved hands? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of the alcohol hand gels actually will deteriorate the surface of your gloves to start with, making them less impervious. And there's no evidence to suggest that hand hygiene on a glove actually accomplishes anything. So where you think you might be doing something good, you actually may be causing more harm and actually risk to yourself as well as risk to the patient. But there seems to be a, a, a prevailing notion that it is an okay thing to do. And if anything, you know, you, honestly, you, you'd be better to do hand hygiene on your own hands versus on gloved hands. It's just not, it's not okay. I, and I think I mentioned this to you before. I, in my own home once, I was a lucky recipient of a pick line. And the home health care nurse came to visit and do the dressing change. She had everything all laid out beautifully, and she kept the same pair of gloves on and proceeded to initiate hand hygiene on top of her gloved hands. And I thought, well, I got to say something here. So I made her stop and change her gloves, and she was surprised. And I said, you know, there is no evidence that this is effective. And, you know, we believe in evidence-based practice, right? You know, we should not be doing things just because we've, you know, we've rationalized some sort of risk in our head, which makes it seem like all of a sudden it's okay because I've never seen anything bad happen. So it must be okay. Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we are not going to see the results of that immediately, but we could see the results Mm -hmm. of it later when that patient gets sick because Mm -hmm. we have inadvertently given them, you know, it, it contaminated them. So please, 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 if you think that's the right thing to do, please reconsider.
0: Yep. Okay. On we go. This next question, this is something, again, this happens. This happens in healthcare. The medication administration set becomes disconnected while the patient is ambulating. The patient's doing well, scheduled for discharge tomorrow. Should we just reconnect that set?
1: So if you really want that patient to be discharged tomorrow, (laughs) <laughs> Do not even think about it.
0: <laughs> so let's pull up the standards here. Exactly. Standard forty-three: Administration set management. The administration set changes are performed with adherence to standard ANTT at a frequency based upon factors such as patient condition, type, rate, and frequency of solution administered, and immediately upon suspected contamination when the integrity of the product or system has been compromised and when a new VAT is placed. Period.
1: Period. Period. You walk into the patient's room and the bag is hanging there on the IV pole with the tubing on it and there's no cap on the end of it gone. Toss it. No different. You know, your IV disconnects and that IV tubing drops onto the floor. It's toast. It's done. It cannot be reconnected. There's (laughs) nothing, you, you can't salvage that. It's done, you know.
0: We had a nurse once who was visiting a family member in a hospital and saw that that cap, wasn't the end cap wasn't on and she just happened to have a pair of scissors in her purse. <laughs> she she went over and she snipped the tubing on her loved ones <laughs> I V administration set. And um when a clinician came into the room, she wanted to know what happened. She goes, Well I was just making sure that you weren't gonna reconnect that to my to my mother. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that is so naughty. I know it, but it was, she, was just, she just thought, if I have to leave here and have, don't have the opportunity to talk to someone, I'm going to make sure that they don't use that. Uh, obviously, we don't condone things like that, but but that is how serious it is. It is we, how serious you know it is.
1: Yes, we do know better. But, you know, years ago when I, when I went to my um, pre-licensure nursing program, um, we still spent time in the operating room. So I spend a quarter in the operating room and it's like there's, for those of you who are Catholic, you know what I mean when I say catechism, but there's a book of questions and answers. And one of those things, and it's all about asepsis and it's all about how to prevent, you know, from your sterile field from being contaminated or anything to be contaminated. And one of the first rules that has stuck in my head forever is the floor is an area of gross contamination. It touches the floor, it's gone it touches the IV pole it's gone it touches anything that it's not meant to be connected to it's gone and how many times do we see people pick up a syringe off the floor and reuse it or even the people that pick up linens off the floor and reuse them no no no, no floors sure. are not mm-hmm. ever dis- floors are cannot be disinfected you know because there're shoes on floors and you know you cannot disinfect a floor so why would we think it's okay to pick up and reuse something never, never, never.
0: Well, speaking of reuse, you know, I've been hearing some things about this and I wanted to ask you, what about reuse of a pre-filled flush syringe? Like some of it gets used one time you flush and you use the the remainder of the volume. Are you hearing anything about that happening? Uh, uh, interesting
1: that you would ask me
0: that question, Don. Well, actually,
1: um, a colleague of mine, um, Candy Cross, and I, we did a survey last summer because we wanted. To, we'd heard that same rumor, and we thought, "Well, let's just ask that question." So, we surveyed 100 nurses, just bedside nurses in acute care hospitals. So, we wanted to get to the people that are most familiar with flushing and locking and giving medications. And we said, "You know, um, let's talk about." what your practices are with each different type of line, whether it's a peripheral or a pick line or a central line, or even if it's a port or a dialysis catheter. And interestingly, nurses have some, they've developed some interesting practices. And one of those is that for peripheral IVs, they will use the same flush syringe to flush before a medication and after the medication. So, because with the peripheral, it, you know, most hospitals, ninety plus ninety percent of the hospitals, all stock the ten mL volume, saline, mm-hmm. pre-filled, saline flush syringes, and the nurses would use one of those syringes and use half of the volume, so five mLs before the medication and five mLs afterwards. So, I guess the good news is is that they were flushing before and after, but the bad news is is they were using a contaminated syringe for the second flush. Do you know why? You know, we did follow up and ask that question because I was quite curious about it. Um, I think that not surprisingly, many people said they felt wasteful. It felt wasteful for them to only use half of the syringe and toss it. And the other thing is, is that there seems to be this idea that in my practice, it's not possible that I could have potentially had touch contamination occur. And, you know, touch contamination occurs because our hands are on the syringes to start with. And as we're connecting that syringe to the needleless connector, it is very difficult sometimes to make sure that we don't inadvertently contact the tip of a syringe. And if I'm going to use that same pre-filled saline flush syringe, to flush before and after, where is that flush syringe going after I have disconnected Mm -hmm. it from the first flush? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. people are saying, well, I set it down over here, or I put it on top of an alcohol um, wipe, or, you know, I place it out of the way over here. All of those things are, you know, they're not acceptable because our hands are now contaminated and we're picking them back up again. And you and I both know that the patient zone around the patient is full of microbial contamination. And so we're mm-hmm. taking our beautifully cleaned hand hygiene hands and then putting these syringes down in areas where they're becoming con- and contaminated. And our hands are now contaminated and we're getting more bacteria all over our connections. Mm-hmm. So the answer to this question is, and then the final reason why, and this one was the one that was most surprising, is that nurses were avoiding using two syringes because they were concerned about the environment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this end, there was a definite um, trend from an age point of view. So the older the nurse, the less concerned about the environment. The younger the nurse, the more concerned. So this practice of reuse had several reasons. So cost and waste and, and environmental. But environmental concern was most prominent in younger nurses. And I think that says a lot, you know, so there's a couple of different messages there. First of all, to organizations that only stock the 10 ml volume of pre-filled saline flush, they really might want to consider stocking a smaller volume so that it doesn't really reduce the plastic waste, but it reduces the opportunity of reuse. Because the yes. patient is still the priority here. You know, we have many competing priorities in our life, but the patient is our priority. The environmental concerns need to be more the concern of the manufacturer to be thinking about different ways to package and provide prefilled saline flush. It's But when it comes to us taking care of our patients, it's not our job to solve for that problem. Our job is to pre- prevent any kind of microbial contamination to our patients.
0: Mm-hmm, and so patients.
1: reuse of that mm-hmm. syringe is never appropriate guilty as charged, we've all done it. But the more I've learned over time and the more I've understood touch contamination, the more firmly against that at practice I feel.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those, the 5 mil syringes actually have a wide barrel, the same size barrel as a 10 ml syringe. It's, um, they're really pretty handy. Um, so, and even for patients who We need to fluid restrict and watch every drop. Um, That's a a really nice solution there as well. Mm -hmm. All right, we've got just a couple more things to talk about, and then I've got another item that I'm going to ask you to tell us about when we're (laughs) done. Okay, okay. So we've got just a couple things. Um, One is when the skin prep is rushed or the cleansing of the needleless connector is rushed, and I don't think that there was ever a time. In nursing, where we couldn't understand the value of time, the weight of the volume of work that nurses do, um, so it, we certainly get that. Um, rushing a scrub, rushing a needleless connector scrub, um, although we're tempted to do that, we want to cut it short. Somehow we're saving some time. Um, how can we address that? Um.
1: You know what it makes me think about when you talk about that is a code situation. Mm. So I think all of us who are listening to this um, have been in some sort of emergency, urgent situation with a patient before, mm-hmm. and especially in a code. And it used to be that we would be rush, 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 and hurry, 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 and you know you're slamming medications in, and, and, and you're sort of throwing kind of it's, it's chaos and throwing yeah. caution to the wind. And it, it finally, you know, like some years ago, I think everybody started, started realizing that we needed to take a step back and be more thoughtful and intentional during codes. Meaning that we're talking to each other and we're really taking care and looking at what are the medications we're giving and what was the timing. And that it, it was okay to take that time because you know what? Someone was doing CPR and we were still circulating for the patient. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to take the time to scrub the hub before you inject a medication in that patient. It you have all the time in the world. It's okay. Continue CPR. We're doing what we're supposed to do. I know that there are people are going to say to me, Oh, you know what, I can I can give him antibiotics afterwards if I have to, but at least I've saved his life. Yeah. You may have you can, I can see that rationale, but you know what? I don't have to I can do both. I can both prevent him from getting an infection and save his life, because there is time. And scrubbing the hub doesn't take that long. You know, five to 15 seconds, and then five seconds to dry. You know, you think 10 seconds is a lifetime, but 10 seconds is nothing. You know, there's so many things that we can do in 10 seconds worth of time, but that 10 seconds is worth it for that patient. So taking the time to do it right. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right.
0: Okay. Last question. This is again, you know, in light of these these dirty dozen things or contaminations, potential contaminations that we've been talking about. This one's one healthcare has done so much in the past years to improve in this area. But there is still concern that there is failure to perform adequate hygiene at the time when high-end hygiene is required. And it isn't so much that we, that we want to talk about today, and I'm not going to ask you to tell us about hand hygiene, but why is it that we still struggle with compliance sometimes with something that's just fundamental?
1: Boy, uh, you know, short of getting into everybody's heads, you know, when, when you think about this, all of the different things that nurses and healthcare providers are doing in the course of our day, we're, we're all multitasking and we're doing multiple things at the same time and we're trying to get them all accomplished. And sometimes hand hygiene seems to become less important. And I think a lot of times it's because we don't immediately see the impact mm-hmm. of when we choose not to perform hand hygiene. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, think about when you have a medication error I mean, there's a million different types of medication errors, and we've got them all, you know, graded from letter A to H, practically, in terms of the severity of them. So that, you know, which ones am I going to call the doctor about? I'm only going to call the doctor about the ones where I'm going to have to get an order to fix something that happened because of that drug error, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a, it's visible and obvious. When I go back to that first statement I said about it, safety is what I do when no one's looking. Hand hygiene fits into that same thing. Nobody's looking, but I know it's important to the patient. I may not see the results of that, and I'm not going to be able to have a direct cause and effect line that my lack of hand hygiene caused this to happen to this patient. But the evidence exists that when all of us have the highest compliance with hand hygiene, then the overall risks of infections goes down to all of our patients. I'd rather be part of that whole group there than be the one who is the weakest link in that team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There may be times when the situation requires you to move. Let's say that you have a patient who's about to topple down and you can't do hand hygiene before you catch them. But you, then you have to go back and mitigate for that and understand then that as soon as you get them settled, you're going to wash your hands, you're going to go in. We all know those situations happen. But we've got to be intentional about hand hygiene and we've got to understand that where one of us go, we all have to take it and do it at the same time and do it all the time. Yeah, or being or fully we
0: committed c- to fundamentals.
1: Yes it's the fundamentals but this has this is one of those things where it, we're not going to go back to not washing our hands
0: right. it, so just do the, it the good thing is is we don't have to find something more complicated to do and more costly more anything it's easy it's easy we can all do this yeah we yeah, can i'll can take care of that stuff we can
1: I, you know, it, washing in, you know, the, the five moments or in, in and out or however you want your organization, you know, has a program that they're helping to remind people. And, you know, using visual cues and using each other to tap each other on the shoulder as a reminder if somebody observes somebody not. No different than any other breach of asepsis. You know, I think there was, um, if you think back to... Um, Fully catheter insertions. We've been doing these for years, and now what do you do? You bring a buddy with you to do a catheter insertion to help make sure that during the course of the procedure, you don't accidentally contaminate something, and you've got somebody who is an assistant for you there and helping with the patient. Mm -hmm. You know what? If I was doing central line dressing changes these days, the central line dressings are so much better than they've been, but they are more, you know, you almost need three hands, Right. (laughs) <laughs> so get a buddy. Make it easy on yourself versus risking. You help me, and I'll help you. That's you know how we get through things, and we actually are we become each other's conscience.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And and that second set of helpful hands, absolutely. Yeah. It it is I, actually I've seen some beautiful two person. Uh, central line dressing change procedures. And we're not saying that's absolutely necessary, but when people do it, it works so slick because one person is timing, one person is the one that removes the... The contaminated dressing, the next person is the one that steps in and does the sterile part and the the first one goes to timing the scrub and it abbreviates the amount of time that it takes. Uh, it, it certainly does give you that that strength of knowing each step was performed in the way that it should be. You don't lose your track, you know track of where you are in the procedure and it's it's just a very helpful thing. So yes, sometimes a buddy is all you need. yep. so Maureen, I um, have. <laughs> Yep, <laughs> there we go. We're going to close that into the discussion, huh? No, thank you so much for for all of this discussion that we just had, but I have got another question for okay. you. Okay. You are slated for INS 2021, our conference that we're having in August this year, and um, you have a, a session that you're going to present. So I'm going to have you tell us a little bit about that session and also a little bit about yourself. What's your background? What do you do? We could have done that at the top of the show, but I'm going to have you tell us now.
1: Well, gosh, Dawn, thank you for for promoting this. You know, um, I mentioned before that um, my colleague Candy and I had done this survey of nurses and their practices around flushing. But one of the things that we didn't expect to find out was that there is a sizable percentage of nurses who are not flushing, especially peripheral vascular access devices, prior to medication administration. And it appears that there's some rationalization of the risk that is driving that behavior. Um, so we're going to talk about um, kind of a novel things that people have begun to do, um, how that relates to that concept of normalization of deviance, which you and I have talked about mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. and how... Um, you know, we have standards for how we're supposed to take care of patients. And then there's the reality. And the reality is we may be deviating in a way that is not in the best interest of our patients. And so sometimes novel should be no. (laughs) So that, that's the, that's the, what we're going to explore during my session in August. Um, Just a little bit about me. Thank you for asking that question. So registered nurse, uh, my background was in critical care for a long time, worked for a long time as a critical care clinical specialist, and then moved into the world of both hospital and nursing administration and have held um, several different types of roles over my career. Um, everything from managing a burn center to being the director of perioperative services to uh, leadership roles in quality and safety and risk and infection control. And I think the having um, twice now, I've had infection control um, programs underneath my um, responsibilities. And it's really brought me to uh, my appreciation, I think, of vascular access and infusion nursing as well. Mm-hmm. So in my current role as the chief nursing officer with Visant, um, I do work in hospitals, um, uh, mainly around medication safety of injectables and some work around drug diversion, risk assessments and prevention. And then I also do a little bit of work with industry um, to try to help industry understand better what the needs are at the bedside. Excellent. So um, I really appreciate um The relationship that we've, uh, that you and I have had over a number of topics as they relate to nursing and quality and safety and infusion, and I'm really looking forward. I'm looking forward to speaking at the INS
0: meeting. You know what we are? We are planning an on-ground conference in in August in Las Vegas, and you know we're we're just going to stay open to that. Um, That's that's our goal, and we'll see what the rest of the year brings.
1: Well, March 19th, I get my second vaccination. So I'm looking forward to being out and about again.
0: And keep your mask on.
1: Yes, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am.
0: All right. So thank you, Maureen, for being with me today on The Infusion Room. It's always a pleasure to talk with you.
1: My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Dawn.
0: This concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We welcome your comments. You can reach us at infusionroom at ins1.org. That's infusionroom at ins1.org. Thank you for listening.